The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. It's always an interesting experience to sit here and then um, at some point remember that uh, I'm supposed to say something after that <laughs> sitting. <laughs> I'm just going you know, to easy to sort of forget that sometimes. Um, some of you, some of us may be familiar with the book Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Um, you know, one of the classics, one of the um, important Dharma books in in my practice. And this is a um, a collection of the talks that Suzuki Roshi, who is the Japanese Zen teacher and founder of the San Francisco Zen Center in Tassajara, this is a collection of the talks that Suzuki Roshi gave in Los Altos, not far from here. And so he would go down, I think it was Tuesday mornings, you know, just like, just like today. And he would go down and um, there was a small sitting group that had um, come together in the house of someone. I think it was Marion Derby. I'm not, maybe some of you were there or, or remember that. So, so this was a, uh, um, you know, uh, a group of of lay practitioners of, of of people who were just in the community and interested in meditation practice, and um, my understanding is that it was it was a small, intimate group. Sometimes there would be two people, or five people, or seven people. And um, when I reflect on that, it, it it's there's a there's a poignancy and a it feels like there's a lesson there that Suzuki Roshi would come down, you know, suppose a great, great master would come down, um, you know, from San Francisco every week and give a talk to, you know, a handful of people. And then those talks, be, you know, were, were saved and collected and edited and became this very, you know, um, important book. And, you know, for Dharma in the West, and and I think it's one of the things that I appreciate about you know. And I've heard, I've read that Suzuki Roshi said this is it doesn't matter to me whether there's one person or a hundred people, you know, and doing his best to through through language barriers and because you know English was not his first language to sort of convey something of the Dharma to con- to convey the essence of the Dharma to whoever whoever was was there and 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 wanted to to share that so so we're here on a tuesday morning and um a line while i was sitting a line was coming to me from this book zen mind beginner's mind and i've uh often reflected on this this line it's it's the very first sentence in the book and If you understand that sentence, you don't need to read the rest. Of <laughs> yeah, that, the rest of the book is great, of course, but like many great works, you know, or like so much of nature, to take one part or to take one thread has the essence of everything. So, in the beginning of Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, Suzuki Roshi says. Um, this practice is difficult. You know, this meditation practice, this Dharma practice um, is difficult, but it's not necessarily difficult for the reasons that we may think it's difficult. You know, and then he goes on to say, "It's it's not so difficult to sit still. It's not so difficult to sit upright, you know, in the, kind of meditation posture. Okay, I can read that. Okay. Well. Then he says, and it's not so difficult to attain enlightenment. So, okay. What's, where, is, where is he going with it? <laughs> so he says, what's difficult about Dharma practice is 
to keep our practice pure and to keep our mind pure. Okay, so it's not so difficult to meditate, it's not so difficult to become still, to become concentrated, to attain enlightenment, but to keep our practice pure, to keep our mind pure. And I think to understand this, it takes a little bit of unpacking because um, I believe he's using the word pure in, in an maybe a way that's not so common or not so intuitive to our usual understanding. Um, I think often when we think about pure, we think about something that's set up in contrast to something that's impure, to something that's dirty, something that's um, profane or something. So pure has this you know, image of... Um, uh, everything that's good, you know, just get rid of everything that's bad and collect everything that's good, that's perfect, according to our idea of what's good and what's perfect, and that's pure. And, and this usual way of understanding is tied up often with spirituality, you know, so the sense of the monk is pure because they don't eat meat, they don't have sex, they don't touch money, all these dirty things. And so they're pure, right? And they keep their, you know, they keep their mind pure, their practice pure. And so I think from, from our usual point of view or the external view, there's this understanding of purity and impure. Um, so but I think if we stop there, or if that's our understanding of what Suzuki Roshi is saying, we're missing something. We're missing, we're missing sort of the heart of, of, of what he's trying to convey through the practice. And um, one, maybe one illustration of this with a story is um, that there's a story of uh, Suzuki Roshi being driven out of Tassajara. Tassajara was the Zen, you know, uh, mountain center that is still going well in, in uh, near Big Sur in Carmel Valley. And this was in the late 60s when they had just opened it. And he was being driven out by a student. And, you know, the drive up to San Francisco is, is long, about three or four hours. So they stopped for lunch at a luncheonette at a counter. Sit at the, ca- the lunch counter. And um, this was a time where at, um, I think in the larger culture, uh, vegetarianism was, was getting quite uh, popular among certain spiritual scenes and certain alternative scenes. And for sure at Zen Center, there were definitely, you know, there was the, the vegans and then the macrobiotic and then the, you know, all the different kinds of diets, but they're all, you know, in a way, they're all somehow going along this idea of purity, or what's a pure diet? What's the diet that's the most ethical, the most harmless, the most, you know, what would the Buddha eat? You know, this kind of thing. So, um, so the way the story goes, this student, um, you know, was part of this, you know, part of this food movement and he was a vegetarian and he ordered you know salad and then Suzuki Roshi uh, when when the waiter came by he said uh, I'll have a cheeseburger (laughs) (laughs) what (laughs) you know this great this great spiritual being this master this um impeccably kind of ethical, um, beloved teacher just ordered a cheeseburger, you know, okay, well, you know. And um, so they get their food and then uh, they start eating and Suzuki Roshi takes a bite and then he says, "Um, I don't like it, let's switch. (laughs) 
<laughs> and you kind of, you know, I, c- I can empathize with the student who's, you know, <laughs> the, c- the, c- the kind of confusion or shock or of being sort of, uh, you know, somewhat coerced by your teacher to eat a, to eat a cheeseburger. Um, and um, so, what what is what is what is that about? You know, is it, you know, I I don't think it means that it doesn't matter what you eat or what choices we make or uh, that there's no place for um, personal ethics in 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 food and you know the or wisdom or you know these are harm reduction and all the all the beautiful reasons that people have you know particular reasons that we eat what we eat um but i think what this particular teaching in in this particular relationship in this particular context is pointing to is that there's a way that we can become attached to our preferences and believe that there's some way not only just being attached to our preferences, or I prefer to eat this over that, I think um, a cheeseburger is impure, and whereas a salad is pure. And then there's something about this willingness to take what's given, and without, you know, without so much filter of opinions and preferences, something about that that is acknowledging we, c- we are a part of life. We're a part of everything. We can't, there's no place, there's no vantage point that we can stand outside and say, I'm not part of this food chain. I'm not part of this dirty world, this, this world that has um, good things and not so good things, that has... Um, so, so if I think that by not eating meat, I'm better than you, I'm more pure than you, or I'm somehow, you know, I, I'm pure in a way that, that, that you're not, I think that's the challenge in, in, in this particular story. Um, maybe. Um, and I'll be interested to hear what you think of this. Um, and, and, I think it's an interesting story to reflect on being lay practitioners. You know, most of us, you know, most of us here at IMC are not monastic, we're not monks, we're not nuns. And so we're in, we're in the world. We're in this world that has, um, you know, that has meat, that has, uh, you know, money, that has, um, sex, that you know, raising children. Where, and so, what does it mean to practice? You know, r- to have a practice that, rather than transcending the world, rather than you know, um, going beyond, you know, these these sort of um, uh, you know, the realms of desire, the realms of. Uh, you know, just the, w- the the world of gain and loss and success and failure. Then to have some, so rather than transcending that and going beyond that, what does it mean to be in that world and express something in that world and have some freedom and some sense of stability um, within that world? So we may make choices, but we also can let go. We're, we're able to let go of of our preferences when we need to and take what's given and accept what's given. And it's interesting to me that I, I think in the, in the Buddhist time and in certain, certain streams of uh, monastic practice, uh, the monks and nuns are not actually vegetarian. And not because it's so great to eat meat, but um, their practice is to accept what's given. And their food is given by the lay people who may sometimes have meat and sometimes have vegetables and, you know. So, um, I, I, I think, I think the, 
the one traditional monastic rule is monks can't eat animal that has been slaughtered just for them. You know, so it's kind of dis- to discourage that. But if it's already being served and something is being served to them, uh, they should eat it. And so maybe in the same way, when we meditate, um, what is it to keep our mind pure, our practice pure? One, one definition of that kind of purity is to be willing to take what's served up in each moment, you know. So rather than having some idea of, this is what a good sitting looks like, this is what a good, you know, I know what's supposed to happen. I'm supposed to sit down and follow my breath and get calm and blah, 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 blah. And this is what's not supposed to happen. Well, that daydream or that feeling, that emotion or that, you know, um, maybe this kind of purity in practice has to do with um, uh, not with letting go of preferences and this kind of inclusivity or this openness to whatever the moment serves up, whatever food you know we're given in the moment is like rather than uh, judging it, rather than pushing it away, rather than grasping onto it, it's like meeting, meeting experience exactly as it is. Um, without, especially without, you know, and Suzuki Roshi of, often talked about this, without this idea of gaining something or gaining mind, to doing, to practice in order to, so usually when we do something, there's a sort of, um, there's a goal in order to, I do this, I exercise in order to feel better, be healthier. Blah, blah, blah. I do this in order to that. And th- there can be, um, of course we, we have reasons for meditating and there are great reasons, there are wonderful reasons for meditating. Um, but I think this is pointing to something that's, um, dare I say, more pure than that. And it's, and it's a purity that's, that's almost like the innoc- it's an innocence of, you know, doing something just for its own sake. You know, when we do something without reference to something else. So what is it to sit and to just totally embody the moment, totally embody our experience without an agenda? I think that's what Suzuki Roshi means. To sit without an agenda is to sit, um, is, to, is to keep our original purity, our fundamental purity. And that is actually really difficult. You know, that's much more difficult than having some great experience in practice or pushing and pushing and getting really concentrated and doing something or to actually sit without an agenda and to allow um, you know, the flow of life to just reveal itself moment after moment is, is difficult because it's so much in our nature to um, go for what we want and, g- and try to res- not have what we don't want. And so we take birth. You know, when something comes up in the mind, we grasp onto it and we become it, you know, so uh, some, some emotions, some stories, something, we embody it, we become it. And that's called taking birth, that's rebirth. So moment after moment, we're sort of, you know, if you've ever had a really strong emotion, which I think all of us have, you know, and it could be fear or anger or desire or something, and it's like, there's, n- you know, we just totally, um, become that emotion. Um, we're so caught in the grip of fear or something that, y- you know, there's, it, it, it's, so, it's so manifesting in us that we, there's no independence from it. You know, it's like, I mean, I think about my kids when we ha- having, a, having a temper tantrum or something, you know, this is like, 
it's like some weather system just moves in quickly, and then it's like, no, no, like don't, and stamping the feet, and you know, and and then it then it passes, then it passes. It's like, you know, it's amazing, and the mood can shift so quickly, and so. Um, in meditation practice, we are developing um, the ability to be with experience without reacting. So this non-reactive awareness. Um, and I think this is, is, is somehow connected to this sitting without an agenda, sitting with a sort of an innocence, a purity, a beginner's mind. Um, When my mind is full of ideas of what I think should happen and what I think meditation is about, or what I think should happen in my life, what I think, you know, how I think other people should should be, how I think um, people should treat me, what I think uh, I should get or not get, when I'm full of all those ideas, um, it's hard to it's hard to learn something, actually, you know. So there's something in this sitting without agenda, without reacting, that empties us. That empties us in this very satisfying, beautiful way, and then it allows um, allows for possibility. It, so, um, to, to develop a sort of s- steadiness in the midst of change, to develop a steadiness in the midst of the ups and downs of life, um, is considered, you know, part of, you know, I would say the heart of, of Dharma practice. That can I, um, can I find balance? Can I find ease? Even though I have preferences. You know, we'll always have preferences. But what is it to have some freedom in the midst of my preferences? So maybe I prefer to have a salad. But life has given me a cheeseburger. Um, maybe I prefer to have a cheeseburger. <laughs> but I think, well, I don't think it's so good to only eat cheeseburgers. So I choose a salad, you know. And so to have some wisdom, uh, to have some freedom and balance, this state is called in our, in our tradition, our insight tradition, this is called equanimity. So to have equanimity, this evenness of mind, it's like um, sometimes the Buddha talked about this as the way a mountain is so stable, so steady, but unmoved. You know, so you can, you can complain to the mountain, you can um, yell at the mountain, you can praise the mountain, try to butter it up, and tell you, the mountain's just, just there, just boom, just, you know. Um, so equanimity has this quality of stabili- stability, steadiness, being unmoved. Um, but it also has this softness this like almost like bamboo being uh, the strength in bamboo is in its flexibility. And the strength in keeping a pure heart, a pure mind, an innocence of of sitting with openness without, um, you know, agenda is that it gives us flexibility. It's like if, if, if I have a, um, a fixed agenda, I know what you need and I'm going to tell you what you need. I know what I need and I'm going to make sure I get that. Um, sometimes there's a brittleness in that. And so this quality of equanimity has a softness, a flexibility that, um, that you know, okay, maybe I, maybe I, maybe I prefer to eat a salad, but, you know, can I, can I go with this? Can I, can I stay with the experience of this and see what it brings up in me 
and see what um, feels like the appropriate response in this moment. Um, so equanimity is often talked about in response, well, in response to change. So it's a steadiness, um, an independence in response to all conditions, but in particular in response to changing conditions. So, and, and classically, the conditions that are, um, are, are, are sort of delineated are what's called the eight worldly winds. You probably heard this teaching of these are the, the winds that of change that every person is said to face. You know, so um, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, um, fame and ill repute or disrepute, and anybody gain and loss, pleasure and pain? Oh, and praise and blame. That's a big one, praise and blame. So these are very interesting that it's these set, these set of four. So praise and blame, gain and loss. Sometimes it's success and failure, gain and loss. Um, fame and disrepute. And um, did I say pleasure and pain? Pleasure and pain. Um, how much does my sense, my inner sense of well-being depend on what others think of me? You know, what others say about me? Um, when I, when, you know, most of us prefer to be praised, to be blamed. Um, although I, I, I have certainly felt discomfort at praise and I know other people who, who who find praise much more difficult than, than, than blame. But it's interesting. It's like praise and blame activate us in a certain way. You know, uh, pleasure and pain. Of course, we, we want pleasant feelings, pleasant sensations, pleasant moods. We don't want painful things. Um, gain and loss is a very interesting one. I was on a long retreat in 2008, when that was the year that the stock market like plunged and the economy was in free fall. And, and it was very interesting to practice with, um, with loss, you know, that kind of, you know, with, do I have any savings left? You know, um, um, fame and our reputation, how mu- you know, how much does my inner well-being depend on uh, being thought of in a certain way, being seen in a certain way? Um, you know, I, f- I think a little bit about you know, in the news right now, there is a a wave of um, sort of famous, well-regarded people being sort of outed as, you know, having done something, you know, sexual harassment or something. And I think about that and, you know, it's just the, the shifting winds of reputation. And what is that? How, how is that for us? You know, when, when we're the one who's uh, in the eye of that storm. And so the teaching about equanimity uh, is a is a suggestion that it is possible it is possible to have some freedom it is possible to have some independence and some inner well-being that doesn't depend on these winds you know these winds will always be there um and it what i what i like about these is that in in a large sense they're out of our control right I don't control what the stock market does. I don't control what other people say about me or think about me. You know, we have some control. We have some some agency. But um, this is like, how do we deal with the ways that our self, our sense of self, gets 
inflated, deflated, activated in ways that are external to us. And if, if my sense of well-being, my sense of who I am, depends on these winds, uh, that's a guaranteed recipe for suffering. You know, um, there's a great story about the, the Zen teacher Hakuin, who was, you know, 17th century, 16th century, you know, famous Zen teacher in Japan. And he was living in a hermitage. And I think so, so it was maybe it was on the, on the grounds of a wealthy family's home or something. And um, and so he was a he was a well-regarded teacher. And then there was a teenage girl who lived in that home, and she became pregnant and had a baby and wasn't married and wasn't you know supposed to be doing that. Um, and she she said that um, so she had the baby, and then she said that. Um, response of, of sort of dealing with her problem there, she said that the father of the baby was Hakuin. The father of the baby was this teacher. And, you know, the family, you know, they were outraged. The community, how could you do this? You know, sleep with this girl and get her pregnant. And, well, you have to, you have to raise this baby now. So they gave him the baby. And in response to all this, it's, as the story goes, he just said, Oh, you know, so they came and told him that you're the father of this baby. So he said, oh, is that so? And they said, no, you have to, this is your responsibility. You have to raise this baby and you're a terrible person, terrible teacher. Said, oh, is that so? Okay, so he, so he was kind of driven out and he, whatever, had this baby and took the baby. And then uh, some months later, or maybe it was a year later, the girl, uh, the mother, felt remorseful. And so she confessed that actually, no, it was, the father was my teenage boyfriend. It wasn't that old monk. And so they, they uh, apologized to him. And, the, you know, and, 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 the, and the community sort of repented and, and took the child from him and, and get, you know, took it back. And, and you know, in his response, oh, is that, is that so? You know, and... Um, Given, given his his um, his willingness to just accept what what people said, and not, you know, not not fight it, not not um, not be defensive, is is sometimes held up as an example of equanimity. It's an extreme example of equanimity, um, but this idea that his he knew what was true and he wasn't um, so because he had this very strong inner sense of truth and of equanimity and then what what other people were saying it didn't you know you know he kind of he was a monk he just said okay you like me you don't like me okay um, for most of us, <laughs> you know, when we're accused of something that we were blamed for something that we think is unfair, um, how do we? What do we feel? How do we respond? What does that bring up in us? Um, I don't think this teaching is saying never speak up, never fight back. Don't you just be a mountain? Um, but it is. Uh, it's pointing to a kind of independence that's possible, a kind of non-reactivity that's possible. And then from that place of non-reactivity, maybe we can respond with wisdom. You know, so sometimes it will be to say, oh, is that so? Okay. You know, someone uh, comes up to you and is really upset with something you did or said, and you just have this sense of, you know, somehow I feel that this is more about this person and their state of mind and their suffering than it is about me. So rather than get into a debate with them, as a, you know, just to really listen and hear them and, oh, okay, okay, you know, and really take it on, accept it. And, 
enter into their world. And, you know, so without reacting, without being defensive or rationalizing or something, you just, okay, okay. And then something in that often can unlock the feelings of the other person or unlock their heart in a way. And it's, oh, what I really wanted not was to win an argument, but was to be heard, to be listened to. And so to offer that to another person comes from our equanimity. Um, the, The doorway, so how to do this, how to practice this, Equanimity is not so much a practice in, in our sort of schema of meditation, but rather it's the fruit of practice. You know, if you, if you think about this teaching of the seven factors of awakening, equanimity is the seventh, you know, so in some way it's the culmination of our practice, consider the doorway to awakening. And so what supports equanimity are these more active factors, mindfulness, um, engagement, investigation, energy, effort, this sort of applying ourselves, this willingness to be with the experience we're having. And rather than taking birth in each story, each, each thought, each emotion, we can witness it, we can see it, we can observe it, from a place of balance, from a place of independence, from a place of ease. And then that effort, just simple effort over time to be mindful in a non-reactive way, um, builds this kind of equanimity. And I think the key to understand, or one key of understanding equanimity is the word equal. And in what sense is all of our experience in some way equal. You know, usually we are very much in the world of inequality or differentiation. You know, so we are, maybe there's an evolutionary advantage, I'm sure, to being able to perceive difference, right? We perceive difference, perceive the uniqueness of something. You know, my daughter is, is learning cello, and I mean, very, very early in learning, you know, so in the Suzuki method, you know, so that's very much in the, in the, in the training the ear to, to discern through listening pitch and to, li- to learn different notes. So the teacher will turn the cello around and play a note and then ask, what note is that? Or we'll ask, will ask uh, my daughter to play the same note that she played. You know, so it's discerning difference. This is this note and it's not that note. It's a D and it's not a G, right? And this is a very useful human skill to develop. And, you know, we, we know this and we have this and it's, you know, so, so the world of differentiation it's good to know this mushroom is good to eat and this one is poisonous. This one, you know, this is, you know. So, um, but for the, from the Dharma perspective, differentiation is only one side. The other side is equality. Is that in some way, all experience is equal. All experience is equal. Um, and to when we can tune in to the equality of all experience, there can be a letting go, and there can be a, a realization that, you know, okay, it doesn't, you know, if you've ever been paralyzed by choice in something, something, you know, some, you know, do I choose the, the red one or the blue one, or the, you know, thing. And then at some point you go, well, it doesn't really matter that much. It's about the same. It's like, you know, it's like that's sort of tuning into the equality of things, it, it, you know, in, a, in an ordinary way. From the Dharma perspective, the, the doorway to this equality or, or the, 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 the nature of the equality of experience is 
its impermanence. You know, so in some way, all of experience, even though there's different flavors of experience and different, you know, different particularities and different nuances, it's said that all experience is equal in that it's changing, that it's insubstantial, that it's empty. You know, so this, to, to just tune in to this dimension of experience, the empty side of it, the changing side of it, the insubstantial side of it, is what, more than anything else, helps us to develop equanimity. Um, when I remember that it's impermanent, when I remember that something can let go, something can be released, something can be returned, it's like, oh yeah, everything is just going its own way. This is just nature. Um, we feel sad when we see an animal that's been sort of, you know, um, remembering times I've seen like a deer or something that's been sort of killed and then, or maybe even run over or something, but then like sort of picked apart, you know, and the, and the, and the, the cycle of nature very quickly, you know, swoops and the dogs come in, the birds come down and they just, you know, they just take over. And, you know, so there's a side of us or side that can grieve or side that can, ah, you know, the pain of this. And then there's also the side that sees that this is part of the cycle of nature. This is part of the cycle of life. So for us as human beings, um, we do our best not to harm life. We do our best to keep the first precept, which is not to kill, not to take life. Um, and we, we acknowledge that our life depends on the sacrifice of the lives of others whether it's the, the vegetables that are growing, that have their own being and have their own destiny, whether it's the, the animals or the fish that um, sacrifice themselves for, for, our, meat, for our food, um, whether it's the ants who get squashed when we walk mindfully in our <laughs> walking meditation. Um, you can't live in a way without uh, taking life, you know, so, so what is it to honor both sides? It's like, you know, the side of the, um, taking care of all the particulars, all the nuances, all the, um, uh, the differences, and the side of equality, the side of remembering impermanence, re remembering emptiness. And um, so sometimes it's said that, that the particulars are the vertical, right? And then the, the, the equality is the horizontal. So everything is, exists on these two planes. And where everything meets is right here, just this, you know, where the horizontal and the vertical meet this is where, this is, this is, this is our uh, pure-hearted Dharma practice, you know, to just be willing to meet just this, and just this, and just this. Um, so, thank you very much. Um, I hope that was not too much of a windy uh, path. And I'm curious, we have a few minutes. I wonder, yeah, please, questions, comments. So is it like unskillful to strive for goals? And like, for example, let's say you in a healthy way, you have a desire for enlightenment. So it makes you go to the center. It makes you meditate instead of drinking alcohol. It makes you, I don't know, do yoga instead of bodybuilding and be honest, you know. So having that goal is, is something that helps you to strive for it, you know. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Great question. Um, I would say it is really, really important and helpful to have goals and to have aspirations and to have 
a direction for ourselves. That's what brought all of us, brings all of us to practice, is, it, is, is this inner wish to be more f- you know, free, to be more awake, to be more happy, to suffer less. So um, that's, that's the tricky thing. It's like there is a really important place for goals and not to deny them, not to be ashamed of them, not to actually it's really important to be aware, to be very aware of what are my goals, what are my intentions, what are my, and to give ourselves the greatest, you know, aim high, you know, don't just, you know, aim to be a little, little less crazy. Be, you know, we want to be, we want to be free. We want to be happy. We want to be, so there's a place for that. And, and, and I think w- this is sort of the challenge of this teaching is um, what is my relationship to those goals? If I, if I sort of grasp them and grasp onto them in a way that makes me um, sort of tight, that makes me brittle, that makes me, um, oh, I can't... I'll, you know, I can't uh, turn on the radio because I might hear the news and that might upset me. And my practice is just equanimity and I don't want to be upset by anything. You know, so, so I, you know some example. Um, it's like, well, that's not quite it also. So the, for me, the harmony of both of these things, the harmony of having goals and is one side, having beautiful goals. And then the other side is to sit, to be without agen- an agenda. And one of the ways, I mean, you can see for yourself, how, what, what would it mean to harmonize those two things? But for me, a nice way of, that, I, that I think about it is all of those goals and all of those intentions and aspirations bring us to the here. They bring us to the cushion. They bring us to the willingness to be present. Then, when we begin our practice, begin our meditation, um, we let go of everything, including our goals, including everything. Because a goal is an, is an idea. And to meet this moment in an innocent way, in a, in, a, in a pure way, maybe means to even let go of those those ideas. Because if I have an idea that, um, you know, okay, so my goal is to be an ethical, good, uh, calm, awake person. And then I sit, and then I'm having some thoughts that are not very ethical, (laughs) not very calm, (laughs) not so pure. There might be some conflict there you know, between how I think I should be or how I really want to be in this beautiful way versus how I actually am. And so um, to be to keep our practice pure means to not be in conflict with what's happening. So then um, I let go of my ideas and I let go of these beautiful ideals and I, I, I return to the actual, what's actually happening. These thoughts, these feelings, this idea for get revenge for this or you know, whatever it is that's coming up. And I'm just fully with that in a very direct way without judgment, without reacting. Does that make sense? Yeah. That I, ca- I can meet that and without conflict, without like, oh, I should be a different way. You know, I can just be with that and just be with that. And so, so we hold both of these, you know, we hold our goals. But just like my goal is to eat salad, but if life gives me a cheeseburger, you know, it's not a big deal. It's, a, it's okay to have a cheeseburger once, maybe, you know. Um, or maybe there's a skillful way of saying, I'm, g- I, you know, I, I, whatever I, can't eat that or I don't eat that, so I'm going to take that and save that and put it in a box and give it to someone who's, you know, hungry. And I'm, I'm fine not to eat lunch. You know, I won't, I'll be okay, you know. And so there's, there are different ways. There's you, no, could you could order another lunch. You could, uh, you know. Um, so, um, yeah. yeah. And also, is there a role for striving on the spiritual path? Is there a role for striving on the spiritual path? 
Um, for most of us, there there's a role for striving, and it's not a very helpful role, <laughs> you know, because it's like the problem with striving is not that it doesn't work, but that it almost works, you know. So we can waste a lot of time. I'm almost there. It almost worked, you know, and we can, you know, and I think, I think striving has its place. And I think it's something that if we, some of us have a sort of temperament where you give, you give me a task and I'm just going to be like a dog with a bone and I'm not going to, you know, just not let go. You tell me to be with the breath. Okay. Okay. You know, no matter what, I'm going to grit my teeth, bear down and be with the breath. And it works to the extent that it builds some concentration, it builds some samadhi, but that kind of samadhi often has a lot of tightness with it and a lot of um, desire with it and a lot of... So then at some point we have to learn to soften it and to to let go of everything that's extra in the striving and to learn to be with the breath in a relaxed, receptive, open way. So did the striving help? Maybe, maybe it, you know, I know in my practice, it was, it was very helpful just to see that I could put in some effort and get some result, you know, and that gave me some confidence in the path. But I had to unlearn a lot of bad habits too. So I don't know if there was any time saved, (laughs) you know, because, you know, if you strive and push, you kind of get there faster, supposedly, but then there's so many things you have to unlearn that it's probably a wash. But if, if, if you have the personality where striving comes naturally or striving is what is coming up, then that is a wonderful thing to work with and to bring into consciousness, bring into awareness, notice the quality of the effort. You know, does my effort right now, does this feel balanced? Or does it feel like I'm often, you know, you can tell with the posture, there's a leaning in if you're meditating and kind of what's, what's going to happen next or pushing, there's kind of pushing. So just, can I be more balanced? You know, what does it mean to, so if there's too much striving, then to sort of soften things. Some of us err on the side of um, not putting in as much effort. You know, it's like, oh, well, you know, maybe, maybe the next lifetime I'll, you know, and it's kind of just... You know, we're kind of going through the motions, and and then you know, can I can I sit more upright? Can I bring more energy to the sitting, to the breath? Um, you know, we're too much on the side of well, it's all empty, it'll be okay, I guess, and you know, so okay, but you know, bring more in. So, so just to learn to tune our own effort is very very valuable in practice, and there'll be times when it's one way. Thank you. Thank you for for this talk. It uh, I had a, a bit of an insight when you were just, just telling the story about Suzuki Roshi and the student. The insight was something like all the I could view all the. Uh, discussion in the media and in politics about superiority as also willing to teach me about my own sense of superiority. And that would help me let go Mm. of that sense of superiority. Mm. So that was... um, You know, it doesn't mean I agree with the superiority going on in Washington, D.C. or elsewhere these days, but it was a good good insight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, when you were talking about striving, I thought of the Taoist concept of wu-wei, which means actionless action, that you, you accomplish something even though you're not being uh, uh, sort of 
just by being yourself. In a way, maybe we need a concept of stressless striving. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, and uh, so, it, water is supposed to be the embodiment of actionless action because it does a lot of things without really packing a punch behind it. You know. <laughs> okay. Um, also, I was cursing. I. You know, Tibetan Buddhists eat meat, and they do it because up in the high mountains there just isn't any way to sustain the vegetarian diet. I mean, yeah. okay, so. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, the, uh, I like that, stressless striving. Um, <laughs> could have trademarked that. Um, there's, it's just an interesting paradox that... Um, in, in this willingness to be present in an open way without an agenda turns out to be one, the most transformative thing. You know, we think like actually, well, you've got to have some big agenda and then just pursue it. Um, I mean, the agenda is to be open and to be present with whatever happens. And then that sort of um, allows the path to unfold in, you know, so, so I, I think that's the f- most efficient way, even though it's, you know, it's like, you know, it's, it's really non-doing. It's really, it's, it's really, um, and, but as, as Suzuki Roshi says, there's, it's difficult. It's actually, it's not just like, be a sort of bump on a log. It's like, you know, it's actually, it takes a certain kind of effort to notice all the ways that our agenda creeps in and, and, and be with that and, 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 and see that and, and, and then let that go and then come back. So we're going against our conditioning in a way and I think that's what's challenging. Rightly or wrongly, there are people who do do both yoga and bodybuilding. Okay, okay, okay. thank you. you. (laughs) I just want to thank you for this talk about right effort. It (laughs) so helpful. Um, I was stuck with this line in the Fukan Zazengi: "If the least like or dislike arises, the mind is lost in confusion." So it was like I rigidly attached to that. So I was always in you know one or the other. But your talk it's very helpful in terms of um, letting go of that idea. That's an idea. That's a view. You know, of getting stuck there and being able to release that to some extent. Um, So. Anyway, I also wanted to say that I had the opportunity to drive um, a forest monk from his home in Morgan Hill to his hermitage. And on the way, he, or someone asked him about eating meat. And he said that he, he sometimes eats meat because people at his monastery, uh, the, the, um, the lay people will come and bring a lot of food and some people don't know so they bring meat and he wants them all to feel uh, like they participated in this and that he's grateful so he eats some of the meat I thought that was a, that, I like nice. that nice. Yeah, thank you thank you uh, well, it reminds me of a time I was uh, I was vege- very vegetarian and uh went to a dinner that um, kind of friends had cooked, you know, like a, a home-cooked dinner, and it was kind of a special occasion. And I just, my, you know, and, and, and they served, you know, sort of some kind of, I think it was like a pork bone or some kind of thing. And I, you know, inside I thought, oh, oh no. But um, it just seemed like the skillful response in that moment was to just eat it very graciously, 
And I, I'm also um, reminded of, I, I think this is this something I read about um, the Queen of England that, you know, there's elaborate sort of manners that, you know, and, 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 and certain bowls and things that you're, you know, it's kind of a big spread when they have these very fancy meals. And then someone um, who was her guest, I'm not remembering the story, but took the, I guess there was like a, a little bowl of water and, and was sipping from it. And then the queen started sipping from it. But it turns out that, I mean, usually that bowl is to clean your hands. <laughs> you know, clean your fingers or something. But is the definition of manners to know every fork and to know which one is the right way to do things? Or is the definition of manners and politeness and um, ethics in a way is to make your guests feel, you know, uh, comfortable and, and seen and, you know, so she, you know, just follow, follow their lead and, you know, it was the interesting, interesting story. So, yeah. Okay, maybe one last, any, anyone? No? Yeah. So, shall we? Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>